You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed be our true wisdom and our true word. We pray that we would hear from you tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see all of you tonight. All of you, there's a lot of people here. Wonder what the preacher's going to say tonight. It's a controversial topic. It's good. Last week, uh, we spent some time uh, on the on-ramp to get back into 1 Timothy 2 and thinking through some issues and realities related to gender. Really just setting up the table, though, for the conversation to follow. Tonight, we're going to get a little further up that ramp and then jump right into the really, really controversial stuff next week. If you missed last week or haven't listened to that yet, I encourage you to do that sometime uh, this week. Perhaps some of the stuff, if you didn't hear last week, uh, that you hear tonight, you might have some questions about, or what does he mean by that? Well, perhaps some of those some of the things that we talked about last week. But I mentioned two lenses through which the majority of folks understand gender throughout the Bible. Uh, the first lens that many might see or read gender in the Bible is that of egalitarianism, which is defined by the Christians for biblical equality. Uh, it means that all believers, without regard to gender, ethnicity, or class, must exercise their God-given gifts with equality or with equal authority and equal responsibility in church, in home, and in the world. In other words, especially on this side of the cross, there is, an egalitarian would argue, no distinction between male and female roles within the church or within the home. The other lens to understand gender, and the one that I began to argue for last week, is that of complementarianism. That God has created two genders that are different and distinct, but through difference, even in role, complement one another. Or by doing so, by having distinctness, uh, improve one another's qualities. I argued last week that we see complementary gender relationships 
uh, in keeping with complementary complementary cosmological relationships in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, before sin enters the world in Genesis 3. But after the fall, now male-female differences can often be a place or even a source of struggle and of sin, not a place of mutual help and of flourishing. So tonight, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and then beyond to consider what God has created complementary genders uh, to point toward and to become together in marriage and otherwise. And then we're going to consider some potential objections to complementarianism or this understanding of gender. So three headings and questions for us to work through this evening. What did God create male and female to become together? What are they pointing to and what are, what are they oriented toward? Is the Bible misogynistic and is complementarianism misogynistic? So what did God create male and female to become together? What you heard Logan read from in Genesis 2 is the first marriage. Adam and Eve, God takes two people who are distinct and different and he brings them together to make them one. Two people now become one flesh. Together, what they could never be apart. And together, as we thought through last week, he blesses them and he gives them a job. Last week in Genesis 1, verse 28 we read that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is for both of them to accomplish together in a way that they could never do apart. Together, in a way that they wouldn't be able to do without the other, they are to subdue a chaotic world. They are to cultivate order, cultivate beauty. And in loving and honoring each other as themselves, male and female, generally in society, and then particularly in marriage, now families, cities, cultures will increasingly be strengthened and will increasingly flourish. Of course, though, as we read the narrative of the Old Testament, this is not what happens. The story of humanity, even the story of God's own people, is a story of sin and of struggle, of abuse of injustice. It is a story not just of animosity of mankind against God, but of animosity of mankind against one another. And we'll certainly see this as we read throughout the Old Testament, uh, certainly in a gendered way as well, as well. Male against female, female against male. But this is not what God has created male and female to be. He has created male and female to be one flesh. Of course, we see this most specifically in marriage, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is actually just a symbol. It is a shadow of something else. It is not the substance. There is something up here that casts a shadow that marriage looks like. But what is it that this is? Paul tells us the thing that human, male, female, shadowy uh, thing looks like is actually a substance of something else. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So this is shadow stuff down here. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now back to Paul and now to the substance. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The shadow of marriage 
is actually, it resembles and it looks like, but it is actually a picture of Christ and the church, the substance. So this is important. Paul isn't, he isn't getting to like the marriage chapter of Ephesians, and he's helping the Ephesians think through what marriage might be like, and he he's just needs to come up with some kind of a sermon illustration. If he could just think of something that, that could help them understand what it's kind of like, oh yeah, I got it. It's like how, you know, you're, you're united to your wife, you're united to your husband. That's kind of like how you're united to Jesus. No, Paul says that human marriage is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church, meaning that God had the mystical union of Christ and his church in mind when he created Adam and Eve, when he created human marriage. He is creating humans with the horizon, the deep horizon in mind, that this points to that and not the other way around. I'm no geneticist, but one helpful image might be just that, like, just that every uh, human or every living thing has a base DNA pattern that then gets replicated out and replicated out and replicated out. Uh, like a marriage is kind of like a skin cell. There is a base DNA pattern in my body that is replicated all over the place, and if I were to like cut off just one little piece of skin, uh, we could then find I don't know you biologists and doctors out there, millions of skin cells within that little piece, and then one of those millions of skin cells would look like the base DNA pattern that is replicated throughout my entire body. Marriage is one of this one little skin cell. It, it looks like, it's part of, it replicates, it, it resembles the base DNA pattern that it is part of, but it would be the height of arrogance for one skin cell to say that I am reality. I am the norm of reality. But this is, I think, what we sometimes do. We are so self-consumed that we make the gospel about ourselves. We make our marriages about ourselves. We make our lives about ourselves rather than thinking about what our lives, our marriages, our other relationships point toward. And so what has God created male and female to become together? One flesh, particularly in the small skin cell form of marriage, and just as Jesus leads and shepherds his church, the husband is to lead his wife as Jesus serves the church to the death, dying for her life, dying for her good, for her holiness. The husband dies to his own selfish desires, washing his wife in the word for her holiness, as Paul describes in Ephesians 5. And as the church follows and submits to Jesus' godly and humble leadership, the wife submits to the leadership of her husband. More on some of the practicalities and what that leadership and submission might look like. And I can just see already people ruffling when they hear those words of like authority and submission. We'll get to that in our third question. But if that is a particular way that this is supposed to play out in the skin cell form of the DNA pattern, God has created male and female to become one flesh together with one another in the family of God, the church, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom of Jesus, and then as we are together, as we are united together, male and female, to make one new flesh, then we are together, the bride of Christ, united to Christ. This is what we proclaim to ourselves and to the world each week when we come to the table, which we'll do tonight. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body. We partake in one bread. We who are many, male and female, now have become one. And we eat together. Or in Ephesians 2, 
Paul's specifically talking about Jew and Gentile, but I think we can make applications to every human being that we are united to one another, becoming a singular bride where if Paul says that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. How's that for Genesis 2 language? One fleshness together, the church, then united to Christ entirely and completely. And here's the thing, the New Testament, the way that it describes the church speaks in very, very gendered language. Think about something that we perhaps have never thought about, that the new birth, being born again, is a very gendered thing, isn't it? The bride of Christ, carrying on a feminine connotation, even as John writes in 2 John, he calls the church the elect lady. If we come to Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3 or any other passage in the New Testament that talks about marriage, merely asking, please, O Bible, please tell me how I am supposed to relate to my husband or wife, we'll end up missing some of the logic. The application uh, made to our marriages are, are helpful, but we'll be missing the deeper reality. We often focus on ourselves and think, yes, the church in some way, how I'm uh, united to other Christians and we are all together united to Christ, that in some way re reflects my marriage. It gives me insight about myself rather than seeing how my personal experience is reflecting the larger reality. The larger reality is not your marriage, is not your potential future marriage, but the larger reality is Christ and the church. The reality that we are meant to reflect is that Christ would come to his bride and then bring life into the world through her. In our context, we have a romanticized vision of marriage where Christ is the prince who comes to rescue the princess, rescuing her from her shame, and that's true, but it doesn't end there. The marriage is to bring life into the world, filling the world with those who would bear his image. The work of the church is to be the mother of more image bearers. The cultural mandate that we talked about last week and we referenced earlier this evening of Genesis 1, 28, finds its New Testament equivalent, that of be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, finds its New Testament equivalent in Matthew 28, where Jesus gives the church, his bride, the command to go and make disciples. The cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and the Great Commission of Matthew 28 are essentially the same command. They're the same thing, that God's people would reproduce themselves to look like themselves who already look like God. They would reproduce themselves into more things that look like them, that look like God, so that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And male-female one-fleshness is needed for both of these. And so this is the one fleshness that God has created male and female to be. I think when we often talk about be, being or becoming one flesh, uh, certainly in a marriage context, we mean this merely as a, in a sexual way. But this is just, I mean, that is like even a smaller part of the one skin cell. It is reality and it points to, but it is the reality is how we are united together, becoming the bride of Christ, united to Christ, the family of God together with him. And just as nuclear biological families have roles and functions, there are within the family of God, there are fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters within the church. We'll have much, much more to think about this, about the family of God, how it can correct our understanding uh, throughout the rest of 1 Timothy, correct our understanding of ourselves as like the center of this thing. 
but I think that this is much of what the letter of 1 Timothy is, is about. It's about the family of God. The church at Ephesus had lost its way. It had become a dysfunctional family. Fathers had become negligent and abusive. Mothers were attempting to become fathers. Sons were usurping their parents. Brothers and sisters were taking advantage of one another. It was a, a family had gone amok. It was a mess. And so Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, I can't wait to get to this sermon. He says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, in the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay. If this is what God has created male and female to become, to become one flesh, to become a one thing that then is united to him, what if Paul is just overreacting though? What if he is a first century Jewish man and he is just hopelessly and culturally misogynistic? He's culturally incapable of understanding gendered roles in the enlightened way that we do. So a second question, is the Bible misogynistic? First of all, let's address one common dismissal of Paul's 1 Timothy 2 instructions, that Ephesus, the city in which uh, Timothy was pastoring, was a particularly crazy city. The religious worship there was dominated in the cult worship of the Greek god, god Artemis, or her Roman name Diana. And so there were women drawing from their Ephesian cultural uh, circumstance of Artemis worship uh, that were running amok now in church leadership. There was a cultural expectation of women leadership in the Artemis cult, and now they were doing the same thing in the church, and they were abusing their leadership. So what Paul then is prohibiting in 1 Timothy 2 is not women pastoral roles and teaching and authority, but women who were abusive in their roles and authority. Well, in addition to more and more archaeological and historical work that's being done to uncover exactly what was going on in Ephesus, uh, there, there were more places of visible female leadership in Ephesus that were uh, perhaps there were, there, in other cities, more there than in other cities, but it was still absolutely run by and dominated by men. The cultural, uh, even Artemis worship that was going on there. Most of these women who were in visible places of leadership were still, uh, often many of them remained as temple prostitutes, an occupation that was forced upon them by their fathers. Ephesus, while visibly might have appeared matriarchal, as we are uncovering more and more, even just letters that are written to and from people within the temples and amongst families, uh, was just as patriarchal as any other Greco-Roman city. In addition, though, this would have been ignoring Paul's similar instructions to Titus on the island of Crete, which didn't share this form of female pseudo-leadership. It would also be ignoring that Paul grounds his argument in 1 Timothy 2 in that of creation, not simply confronting a particular cultural situation going on in Ephesus. It would be ignoring the circumstantial evidence and patterns of male leadership within the rest of the Bible, that God instituted an all-male priesthood, that Jesus chose 12 male disciples. Well, some might argue, Jesus didn't want to unnecessarily upset Jewish leadership and upset cultural feathers by uh, appointing any women disciples. This is an argument you'll often hear, but really? Really? Like, Jesus was really worried about not upsetting Jewish leadership and ruffling any cultural feathers? More on this next week, but I'm convinced that the Bible is clear that men and women are not interchangeable in positions of leadership. 
While it is absolutely true that many women are more than fully capable of giving extraordinarily helpful and faithful sermons, we're not talking about issues of function. We're not talking about issues of capability or even gifting. But here's where a fuller understanding of the family of God will help us because pastors are not CEOs of organizations. They're not elected, elected officials or even heads of state. They are fathers. We don't understand this because we generally and merely see people in detached organizations operating as functions, what they do, what they're capable of accomplishing, capable of doing, rather than representing deeper symbolic uh, orders of male and female. So what is the office of pastor, of a pastor or an elder? The office of the pastor is meant to represent the fatherly place of authority of God to the church. We tend toward thinking of a pastor as the functions that he or she might be able to fulfill, fulfilling teaching functions, fulfilling therapeutic functions. Uh, the pastor needs to kind of work the people and be able to speak publicly well. But within scripture, pastors are to be male because it is God, God's fatherly form of authority that is to be represented to the congregation. Whether we like it or not, Males represent and are the sense of power and strength in the Bible and in cultures and societies. Now, a sinful and corrupted version of this masculine sense of power and strength can create a form of biblical manhood that is merely about like MMA fighting and football and fixing cars and hunting and like Ron Swanson and stuff. And if someone doesn't fit into these neat categories of biblical manhood, the larger culture and even the individual male can assume that they are then not manly. This is a travesty. We need men who are seeking to cultivate greater senses of love and of peace and of patience and of kindness and of gentleness and of self-control, you know, like the fruits of the Spirit that all Christians ought to be growing in. But all the while, not abdicating a godly sense of power and strength as men, of initiative, of provision, of defending those in his care, not sitting by on the couch, watching others do his work, or waiting for others to initiate in improving the situation we would certainly say that Jesus carried an extraordinary sense of power and strength, wouldn't we? And that wasn't a bad thing. Just because he carried and imposed power and strength didn't mean that he then imposed uh, patriarchy onto the culture because he was strong, but using his power and his strength to care for his flock. Today's vision of church leadership is more therapeutic, is more of vision forming, is more nurturing. But shepherds, while they can do those things and perform those functions, are about protecting the flock, are about protecting the church and fighting for its health and safety. We don't need nice leadership. We need humble pastors, we need gentle pastors, we need kind and sacrificial pastors, yes. But we also need pastors who are symbolically representing the fatherly authority of God 
to the congregation, the family of God. And as I, rec- I understand how controversial what I'm about to say is, the family of God needs masculine leadership. But if men symbolically stand for power and strength, remember that God has created complementary genders to be one flesh and to improve one another's qualities. Women also stand for something, symbolically and actually. If Eve received the image of God from Adam when she came from his rib, as you heard read, every single other male in history received the image of God when that male came from his mother's womb. The heart and bonds of the community are found in the female sense of the community, the inner life and the source of the community. There is life. That's certainly not to say that women shouldn't pursue or exhibit or even apologize for strength or for power that we see um, represented in men like Deborah. Most of the godliest women in the Bible are full of strength, full of conviction. They are not afraid to stand up towards and against uh, those who are abusing their power. But in the same way that mothers of nuclear families provide nurture, provide care, provide gentleness, we need these for our churches as well. Even the exact same acts if, if a mother and a father, if a male and a female perform the exact same acts, they will be received differently just because of where it is coming from. Like Marcy and I can both pick up one of our children after he has fallen and skinned his knee. We can do the exact same thing. Pick him up in the exact same way, nurture him in the exact same way. But who does he want to be held by? His mother. Why? What's wrong with me? I was nurturing him. Marcy says, you don't nurture well enough. But Marcy and I can both discipline our children in the exact same way. We can stand in strength against a perceived threat in a parking lot in the exact same way. But the same exact act carries different symbolic significance as well as being received differently by everyone in the situation. More on all of this next week. If you don't think that I've really answered the question yet on all this, it's because I haven't. Uh, So let's think through more on this together next week. But, and now, what of some of the really, really, really difficult texts in the Bible? Like, especially some of the parts of, like, the Old Testament law. It sure looks like maybe God kind of hates women. We don't have time to go into all of those tonight. So in the weekly email this week, we're going to include a link to a talk by Mary Wilson. It's titled, Is God a Misogynist? And guys, it is so good. Look for the weekly email. It should come to you sometime on Thursday. Look for a link there. Click it and listen to it in its entirety. She walks through some of the most surfacely problematic texts in the Old Testament. And while showing the really, really hard and difficult places of context and culture, I think it's going to be an encouragement to you all and perhaps answer many questions that perhaps lots of you have had for a long time. But for now, we can answer the question, is the Bible misogynistic with a resounding no? God and the Bible are not misogynistic. God and the Bible do not hate, do not mistrust, do not mistreat, do not dislike women. God created two distinct genders for each other's good to improve one another's qualities. 
And since humans are both victims of the fall, we are all victims of the fall, but we are all also participants in the fall, rebelling against God, selfishly using one another for our own benefit. The result is often, and presently and increasingly so, of not gender complementarity, but of gender animosity, of gender separation. In answering the question, is the Bible misogynistic? My good buddy Matt Jones and I were talking earlier, and uh, he said, yes, and often there are examples of imperfect, of selfishly motivated, selfish, sinful characters in the Bible who are misogynistic. But very often, especially within the narrative portions of the Old Testament, uh, what we see in these narratives is not prescriptive, but is, is, is not, is that right? Is not prescriptive, but is descriptive. It is describing a reality of what happens when humans convince themselves that they are the arbiters of what is right and wrong, but it is not then prescribing for all of us to then follow them as models. One other thing worth mentioning is that if Paul and the early church were misogynists, well then the first several centuries of Christian women sure didn't get the memo. In a Greco-Roman world where two-thirds of all humans were male, and this was largely due to the fact uh, that girls, infant girls were left uh, abandoned on the side of the road, infanticide, uh, neglect of daughters, many women were dying in childbirth. Uh, two-thirds of all humans in the Greco-Roman world were males, and yet two-thirds of all Christians in the first three centuries were women. While Christianity was wildly unpopular in the world, like you paid a high, especially the later you got into the first and second century, you paid a high societal cost to become a Christian, women were flocking to it in droves. They didn't see it as a place of hostility or of marginalization or of minimization or of misogyny. They saw it as a wonderfully refreshing place to be. In a Greco-Roman world that didn't care about male sexual fidelity, Christianity demanded it. In a Greco-Roman world that celebrated and allowed for a divorce, uh, a male divorce for any reason, early Christianity for forbade it in, apart from very narrow reasons. In a Greco-Roman world that murdered infant daughters, sold child brides into sexual slavery or into temple prostitution, the early Christian church said no, no. Every human, male and female, bears the image of God and therefore bears inherent dignity honor, and value. Buried in the concluding greetings of Paul's letters, and by the way, we never really, rare, or we rarely read these things, right? Uh, I've heard one guy say that the, the concluding greetings, the farewells at the end of Paul's letters, they kind of act as credits at the end of a movie. Uh, it's like your signal to get up and walk out. You don't really need to pay attention to those things. But buried in there is like a gold mine for understanding the early church ministry among women and Paul's value of their ministry. And just one, Romans 16, uh, the evil woman-hating Paul, uh, he mentions nine different women 
He talks about them. He thanks them. He's commending their ministries. Of all the names, of all the names he uh, mentions and describes, the very first person that he thanks and commends in Romans 16 uh, is Phoebe, who likely funded much of the church, led out in the mercy ministry of the Roman church. He thanks and commends Priscilla, who hosted the church in her, her house, like Nympha did in the church in Colossae. And the seven others in Romans 16, uh, the seven other women, these are real people, Real saints that we will meet and know in glory one day with reputable ministries. Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew of them. He had, their, their ministry amongst the Roman church had become so well known amongst the Greco-Roman world that Paul is commending them and thanking them. More next week, but if we think that the only valuable, valuable ministry that can be done in the local church ministry is to be done by the pastors, is done in upfront teaching ministry, well then we have sorely misunderstood the nature of the church and we have undervalued the work of some of the godliest saints in history. I'm gonna also include another talk in the weekly email this week by historian Michael Kruger called The Dynamic Ministry of Women in the Early Christian Church. Uh, Listen to it. Much of what I just said came from there. It's incredible and encouraging. Okay, if we've tried to answer the first two questions, what did God create male and female to become, and is the Bible misogynistic? Finally, we've already touched on some of this, but finally here, is complementarianism misogynistic? We've talked about gender complementarity as being God creating two distinct genders in order to improve one another's qualities, and we've said that there are certain masculine and feminine qualities in difference, generally, but that improve the whole. And as we wrap up this evening, I want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about what complementarianism is and what complementarianism is not. While some throughout history have hidden behind complementarianism, even if they wouldn't have called it that word in centuries past, some have hidden behind these categories of male-female difference and role distinction as merely a way to maintain their power. And that's true. But complementarianism is not a way for males to hold on to power and to get whatever they want. Complementarianism is not that the man gets to make all the decisions. He or they get to be lazy and make demands of the women of the church or of their wives. Complementarianism is not asking for a return to 1950s domesticity where the man works and then he comes home and he gets to pop open the recliner and a cold one and have his wife serve him. Or his wife, who has stayed home all day with the kids, has kept the house immaculately clean and vacuumed and a warm dinner is waiting for him. While texts like Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 5 certainly mention working at home and managing the household as commendable for women. Paul seems to be commending a certain orientation toward the home for wives and for mothers, but we know that Paul couldn't have been preventing or precluding or demanding that no woman should ever work outside of the home because literally only a handful of women in a Greco-Roman city context would have been able to afford to not to work. Perhaps women like Phoebe and Priscilla. Not to mention that the model woman that we find in the Bible is in Proverbs 31 who is commended for all kinds of industrious work outside of the home. 
Not to mention that managing the household, which Paul commends of women in 1 Timothy 5, is also a requirement of male elders in 1 Timothy 3. So this is absolutely not a, just we're calling for a turn for a, bunch, a church full of June cleavers, vacuuming in high heels and in pearls. Complementarianism is, not, is also not general female submission to all males. Authority and submission is always an issue of delegated authority and of jurisdiction. Like, think about it for us. Every person in this room, I think, the French Constitution and the Royal Mounted Canadian Police have no authority over us. All right. And ladies, some Christian man out there does not carry inherent authority over you. We're not talking about some general submission of one gender to another and general authority of one gender over another. This is not what we are talking about. Complementarianism also does not mean that men never submit to the authority of a woman. If a female police officer pulls me over for going 75 and a 35, I'm not going to like roll my window down and say, First Timothy 2.12! Like... Paul says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. So see you later, sucker. Like, what's going to happen? She's going to pull me over. She's going to throw me on my face on the shoulder of the highway, put me in handcuffs, and put her knee in my back. This is what's going to happen. I deserve it. As we'll see next week, Paul is giving instructions for the life of the local church, for the family of God. Complementarianism does not mean that we should never vote for a female candidate for public office or for even president. Queen Elizabeth's delegated authority over England is not invalidated because of 1 Timothy 2.12. Now what we said in the past two weeks carries some meaning for considering voting for elected officials. A candidate is not an androgynous blob. There are trade-offs, goods and bads, for electing a male president for having male city councilors, for having a male CEO. There are also trade-offs. There are goods and bads for having a female president, for having a female city councilor or a female CEO. But again, we're not talking about any of those organizations where biblical commands carry no weight. This conversation is limited to the family of God and its skin cell shadow of marriage in the family, where the commands do carry weight. Now, if that's what complementarianism is not, let's think through a few things that complementarianism is. Complementarianism is more of a responsibility than a right. As Sam Storm says, a right is something we tend to demand or insist upon as something that we are owed. This can all too often make for an authoritarian and self-serving atmosphere in the home. Can it not? Perhaps we've been parts of these homes. When headship is viewed as a sacred trust in which the husband is called by God to lead and honor and sacrifice for his wife, the tone and the mood of the home is radically improved. Male headship or leadership within the home is not about decision-making. But as I've encouraged many of you men in this room, male leadership is more about morale-keeping. It's about setting the tone for the home in humility. Setting the tone for the love of God in my house. Not waiting for Marcy to wait to get things done, 
to wait for her to take the initiative to teach our kids how to pray or for them to read the Bible or something, but leading an initiative. So husbands, fathers, men, make a plan for your family, like for this week. Talk about it with your wife and see if she thinks it's a good idea or not. Many of your plans are terrible ideas and you should, sit, you should listen to your wife. Make a plan, a short-term plan. Some of the things that you'd like to see some growth in, starting first and foremost with yourself. And then, think through with your wife, but taking initiative in this conversation, uh, making some longer term, like what are, what are some things that we'd like to see happen in 2019? And then, it's not good enough to just start this conversation and take the initiative in this conversation, then actually follow through with some of these things. Now, one word about spiritual leadership. Leadership does not mean that a dude needs to necessarily understand the Bible better than his wife. A gal does not, listen to me, a gal does not need a godly, uh, some dude who's like got an MDiv from a seminary and is like a repository of theology. She does not need him to be a godly woman, to understand the Bible for herself. All of us should be growing in theological understanding and our biblical knowledge and marriage to a godly husband can be a great gift. But learning and deep theology is for all of us. And ladies, you do not need a man to be a godly woman, to understand the Bible. Heavens no. A husband does not complete a wife. This is Jesus' job. History is far too deep with extraordinary single women, with extraordinary women who are married to men who are not Christians, with extraordinary women who are married to passive husbands who do not understand the Bible, for this to not be the case. So what is leadership? Well, it looks differently for different marriages. Marcy and I uh, heard Sam Storms at a marriage conference many years ago, maybe 2011 or so, uh, where he said that he regularly asks his wife two questions. And these are two questions that I regularly ask Marcy this morning, in fact. Uh, and he asks her this. He says, how can I lead you and how can I lead you better? These are great, great questions for a husband to ask of his wife. Marcy and I went to this conference with another couple. And for that couple, the, the wife answered this question for her, to her husband. She said, I really need you to like, wake up with me and sit at the table in the kitchen over some coffee early in the morning and let's read the Bible together and talk about it. At that time in our marriage, Marcy really, really wanted me to wake up early, not with her, but to go hang out with the kids so that she could get out of the house and get to Starbucks and read the Bible and pray with a little peace and quiet. And that was what leadership would look like for her in that time in our marriage. So men, you who are married who are to be setting the tone for your household tonight. Ask your wife, how can I lead you? And how can I lead you better? This does not necessarily mean that you facilitate a Bible study for her, where you answer her, all of her questions. That's nonsense. Perhaps it might be, but certainly not for all. What else is complementarianism? It is the power to serve. John Stott explains, if headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. It is power to serve, not to dominate. 
It is power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. In all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. How does Jesus lead his church? How does he do it? Like, how do we see him lead the disciples in his earthly ministry? He set an example for them. He spent time with them. He often ignored the things that he wanted for himself for their good. How does he lead and serve the church? He dies for them. I know I'm killing you with quotes now here at the end, but listen to the way that Dorothy Sayers describes how Jesus modeled how uh, we men ought to relate to our wives and to the men or to the women of our church. Sayers says, the women had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. And may it be so for our church. And like Jesus, who was in the place of highest authority, sought to give authority away, to delegate authority, we ought to be asking ourselves, as the men and even pastors of our church, as we have begun this conversation together, how can we give away our authority in every way that is biblically allowable in order to empower others? How can we set aside our own interests in every way that is biblically allowable in order to see to the interests of others? As fathers in the church, how can we make sure that the vulnerable are cared for and that justice is done? How can we lead in power and in strength, in taking initiative, but in humility, dying to our own perceived needs and to our own interests? Maybe so. Clint prayed for the men of this church. Uh, We ought to do that not just on Sundays, we have to do that regularly. If being part of the family means caring for and praying for each other, maybe once a week or so, we ought to pray for the men of our church. Once a week or so, we ought to pray for the women of our church. We ought to pray for the children of our church. We've got a lot to think about in the family of God, and I'm excited. But come back next week. I'm sure you'll still have lots of questions Lots to think through. Uh, read First Timothy 2 this week. If you haven't read that chapter, I'm just going uh, to go ahead and tell you of what your responses are going to be as you read. They're going to go, huh? Wait, what? Say what? Uh, so if you haven't read it, that, that's what it's going to be, and that's okay. Uh, come back next Sunday, and we'll do some heavy lifting and work through a very difficult passage together. But we'll do so for our own good and for our own joy. Let's ask for God's help. 
God, we are thankful for your care for us, for your wisdom and your um, provision for us in providing two complementary genders. We are thankful for male and female in our marriages. We are thankful for male and female as sisters and brothers in this church, as sons and daughters, as fathers and mothers that you have provided for us. Help us to understand these things. Help us to live into these realities. Help the men of our church begin to die to themselves more and more, seeing to the interests of others, to their wives, to their children, to their neighbors, to their co-workers, to the church. Help us to make plans to initiate and to follow through for the good of our own lives, for the good of our wives, for the good of our families, for the good of our society. Lord, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.